Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny, and of course, the election is only minutes away. Minutes, hours, days, certainly not weeks uh, before the Prime Minister visits the Governor-General. He could do so at any time and fire the starter's gun, as they say, for an election, certainly an important one, one I've described as perhaps in socio-political terms as the most important really since 1972. Now, I know a lot of people say these kinds of things. Each election, we're told it's the most important election in a generation or whatever. But I do think there are reasons uh, that uh, that might be the case this time, just in terms of the issues, the concerns that are surrounding the current government and uh, the big challenges that that governments face, particularly things like climate change, which have not been addressed well by our polity, and uh, there's a a great deal of impatience. And I I feel that there is a similarity between the kind of impatience that had built up over that long period of conservative rule between 1949 and 1972, an astonishing seven or so, eight maybe even governments in a row that the the coalition ran, most of them by Robert Menzies, but... uh, Here we are now on the cusp of uh, putting the coalition back in for a fourth term or taking the plunge, which doesn't happen that often of changing governments. To talk about all of these issues, we have two of the best in the business, Maria Teflaga from the School of Politics and International Relations here at ANU, who is here each week. Howdy, Maria. Hello, everyone. Hello, Mark. And we also have Associate Professor Chris Wallace from the University of Canberra, also a visiting fellow at the ANU and involved in history and political coverage and commentary and a biographer and a former journalist like myself. And of course, a regular contributor to Democracy Sausage. Chris, fantastic to have you with us here again. Hello. It's an interesting time, isn't it? Uh, we, you know, God, it's like being in Darwin and waiting for the wet season to arrive. You know that period of madness. What do they call it? The build-up. Yeah, yeah. And people start going tropo because they just need it, the new season to arrive. I think that that's a real kind of atmosphere around Canberra at the minute. 
just call the election, please. Yeah. Bring it on. We've got to have this election soon. It's funny though, isn't it, Maria, that you, you, you get this kind of uh, impatience because this one is particularly well telegraphed. It really has to happen in, and when I forget really, it has to happen in May. It has to happen by May 21, uh, which is Saturday, the last Saturday in May that it can be called in order to, um, allow there to be enough time for the new Senate to be counted and take its place ready for uh, July 1 this year. So the election has to be by that time. And and Scott Morrison's left it as long as he can, really. It's either May 14 or May 21. And uh, the, the very fact that it's so been telegraphed for so long, I think, has really added to that sense of um, of anticipation and, and impatience. I think it's quite obvious why um, it's it's sort of taken so long. It's because you know, the government has, I suppose, felt that it didn't have the opportunity to go earlier because of the political conditions deteriorating, I guess, in that sort of respectable window where governments can go early for, you know, just norm reasons and obviously strict uh, rule reasons. But the the sort of obvious elephant in the room is actually the court judgment that is due this afternoon in relation to uh, whether or not the pre-selections of the New South Wales branch are compliant with administrative law. The New South Wales branch of the Liberal Party. That's right, the New South Wales branch of the of the Liberal Party, yes. And and last week there was a sort of uh, odd intervention where there was an attempt, I think, by the Attorney General to um, potentially appear on behalf or in support of, I suppose, not the complainant, the other person, Scott Morrison's group basically. Yeah, they took it to the High Court and they had the Solicitor yeah. General very bizarrely appearing in relation to that matter, even though this is an internal party matter. I mean, this is not a government uh, issue. This is the, the the administration of a political party. There, there's particular legal properties attaching to the conduct of political parties. They are entities that have their own specific set of rights to some extent, although some of those are somewhat ill-defined, and that's what was partly being litigated. But the High Court essentially rejected it and sent it back to the lower court and uh, and because there were no constitutional dimensions, I believe. <laughs> well, yeah, essentially. Um, Indeed. But it was bizarre that um, I heard Chris Bowen saying this morning, and I suppose we should say, given your reference to this case, that by the time people are listening to this, the the, the outcome of the uh, New South Wales court process, you know, will be known presumably. But uh, nonetheless, this has been the big the big dynamic. And as I say, I heard Chris Bowen. Obviously, you might say he would say that, wouldn't he, because he's from the, the Labor opposition looking to unseat the government. But, you know, he described the uh, the involvement of the Solicitor General in this political case uh, before the High Court uh, last week as, you know, saying everything about where the government was, you know, um, in terms of confusing its identity between, you know, a political party, the government's interest and the national interest, Chris. Yes, Trump style. Yeah. Inflating your own personal interests with the government yeah. that you are supposed to be dispassionately running in the interests of the nation. Yeah. Absolutely shocking behaviour, but unsurprising, you know, part of a, a nine-year kind of lost decade for Australia that voters will blow the whistle, whistle on or not very soon. The, the thing when we look back on this period of, of the last several months, I think, Mark, that will strike us in retrospect was just how big an opportunity Scott Morrison missed to go early and whatever the result, get a better result than he will get now. Uh, I think in previous democracy sausages, when I've irregularly appeared, you know, I've, I've foreshadowed various early-ish 
election scenarios mm. that Morrison could have followed. And the reason I, I kept analysing those options was I could see that they would have significant advantages for yeah, there was Yeah, there was an apparent logic there, right? Exactly. Mm. And you'd have to say that looking at the polls with the retrospectoscope on, if he had gone in December last year to the polls, he would have actually had a serious chance of winning. But in mid-March onwards, there was this kind of crystallisation of anti-Morrison sentiment uh, outside his party, but more importantly within his party, that has just got worse and worse and worse for him. I think Anthony Albanese's net approval advantage over him is now about 12 points. And, you know, yeah, so, so we should just explain that. So the net approval rating is basically the, the, the separate ratings or the approval rating is essentially the separate ratings that the prime minister and the opposition leader have. And you arrive at that figure by subtracting the number of uh, detractors from people who view the, the given leader as doing a good job. And if you're in positive territory, that's a good thing, obviously. Wherever you're at, if you're ahead of the other fella, um, you're doing better. And the last three times government has changed hands in Australia, the opposition leader has always been ahead of the losing prime minister in net approval terms. Right. So, which is quite different from from better PM, which is that oh, sort of head to head thing. The pro, as you know, the pros ignore preferred PM. It's yeah. just considered a kind of an interesting but junk metric. But approval and disapproval leading to your net approval calculation is really important. And it is not true that the most popular leader always wins the election. But in the last 11 elections in Australia, the more popular leader has always won. So if government is going to change, that's kind of a, a, a box you've got to tick. And Anthony Albanese, as recently as you know, very late December, very early January, still looked a bit kind of iffy. But from mid-January onwards, there seemed to be this crystallisation, this gear shift in how the Prime Minister and his government were perceived in a very adverse direction. And honestly, the later Morrison has left it to call the election, the worse it's got for him. So a bit like uh, Kevin Rudd in 2000, you know, after Copenhagen. Yeah, uh, so 2010. 2010 yeah. The whole Labor Party executive wanted him to call an election. And in, indeed, they went into uh, Christmas thinking that the plan was that the Prime Minister yeah. would come out of uh, the summer break refreshed, ready to go, and would call an election. Climate change would be, you know, the key, one of the big key things because of the, you know, the Copenhagen uh, debacle and uh, and the Prime Minister didn't do that. That's right. He spent January 2010 apparently in a bit of a fugue state, mm. you know, not being able to get to grips with what went wrong in Copenhagen. And in February, the election that should have been called in February for March wasn't called. Mm. And, of course, by the middle of winter, he fell as prime minister. Yeah, and so there I, are people who think that those that you know there's a direct sort of causal link between that that sequence of events, uh, and that he could have won at that time had he gone. But uh, by the time they were in you know the, the dark months of July, they uh, they decided no, they're going to swatch, that, swip, that's right. swap to uh, Julia. Gillard. Well, the Rudd, you know, this is a kind of interesting historical point because people think Julia Gillard was busy running around knifing Kevin Rudd. Far from it. The Labor executive at the time. I was very much in favour of keeping Rudd in place and wanted him to win another election for Labor uh, before possibly replacing him. And so he, it was his leadership was really like a dead branch on a tree that kind of dropped after some some backbenchers started running around freaking out about the polling. And of and course, Bill Shorten got involved, yeah. and that was like throwing Kerr on the fire. And and of course, it fell into the prime ministership fell into Julie Gillard's lap. So I think when we look at Scott Morrison's judgment, political judgment. You know, he's supposed to be this really sharp operator, uh, former state director of the New South Wales Division of the Liberal Party, 
uh, won his miracle election in 2019. But really, this has been a big miscalculation for, for him. And, uh, you know, are we ever going to get to the, to the election? He's, whole, he's, he's kind of paralyzed now because of this New South Wales pre-selection problem. But what if today's court finding doesn't solve the problem? I mean, it's conceivable that he may actually have to call an election without candidates in place. I, I know that's not going to happen, but it's a theoretical possibility. This is really an extraordinary moment, and his fundamental political craft is really being called into question. Maria? Oh, well, I was just going to sort of say, well, he will obviously have to call an election. But yes, as Chris sort of said, potentially without candidates. It's, it's really not quite clear what would even happen depending on which way the court rules, right? You know, or what avenues there are for appeal. Because people are so furious that they are sort of saying extraordinary things, right? You know, so there's this court case going on, but then there is also Catherine Cusack, who is a moderate, um, so so not like uh, from the hard right faction like Conchetta Ferravanti Wells. You know, this morning just sort of, uh, I guess, doubled down on this brutal and frank character assessment of the Prime Minister. Uh, she said that she not only endorsed what Conchetta Ferravanti-Wells sort of said, her factional enemy, but that she would not be voting for Scott Morrison. And I thought the most devastating thing she said was that even uh, the reason she based this on was because she felt that he and um, his appointed, appointee, Shane Stone, who is in charge of Resilience Australia or D- Disaster Management, Quango, I've forgotten what it's exactly called, uh, have been sort of playing po- politics with the funding for uh, disaster relief in the in the sort of Northern Rivers uh, part of New South Wales. And uh, she sort of said that there was really nothing that he could do, like doing the right thing now would not undo the fact that he had done the wrong thing in the past. So that she would not be voting for him under any circumstances. This is, this is you know, someone who has been part of the Liberal Party uh, as a as a representative uh, at the New South Wales level for twenty years. Like this is, you know, we have really strong party discipline in this country. Like th- th- it's sort of it's. I'm trying to convey to listeners that this is not just sort of like uh, you know some an interesting kind of sideshow. This this is the breaking down of really strong self reinforcing norms within a political institution, right? Like people are so incensed that they are so determined to damage the Prime Minister now because they feel that in doing that they will save their organisation. Well, it's a, it, it, that's a really interesting point. I wonder whether, uh, Marie, you see any parallels with, I mean, Chris was just making the point about uh, 2010 and you know missed opportunities and so forth, and it's a very valid point, I think. Uh, I wonder whether you see any parallels with uh, that period also in terms of people turning on Kevin Rudd and then uh, the internal destabilisation of Gillard by by pro-Rudd Rudd himself and, and by pro-Rudd people during that period as well, that, uh, you know, the Liberals are presumably sitting there watching the government essentially consume itself. And one imagines that's what Labor is doing at the moment. They're sitting around thinking, this is astonishing. I mean, you know, the Prime Minister's character is under assault from right and left within his party. We haven't quite seen, you know, as we've seen on in some of these other meltdowns, you know, actual ministers stepping away and so forth. But that's more associated with leadership challenges than, you know, the sort of weeks leading up to an election. But it's pretty astonishing to see a government kind of, you know, basically falling to bits in, 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 in terms of its base. And you'd never know it from the newspapers. I think if I were a Labor MP, I'd be really 
annoyed at the complete underreporting of this massive story. Uh, Labor people often claim there's an asymmetry in reporting, and I think this makes it very visible. If this was the Labor Party, it would be splash party crisis headlines, uh, you know, huge coverage. But instead, you know, the reports are getting tucked away on page seven. Yeah. Uh, it's it's pretty under. Overwhelming performance by by the media bosses. I think I think the journalists are keener to report it than the bosses are. But uh, you know, do we really only have to have a media that's shaped by Rupert Murdoch, Peter Costello as chairman of Nine Entertainment, and Kerry Stokes? I mean, Apparently. God, <laughs> not good. What What do you think, Marie? I mean, it is it is pretty astonishing to see the Liberal Party in in this state because it's it's sort of like a it's sort of like they've put a guy in there who, as Sean Kelly points out, has been very good at up until relatively recently at kind of writing his own story but he's lost control of that of that narrative and and people are coming out of the woodwork on on either side within his party and making the most you know frank uh, assessments which go to his you know fundamental aspects of his character his integrity yeah well i mean this is the thing i guess you you know you, you got to think about when you when you're thinking about these kinds of internal dimensions and that is people who are party members and who are who essentially Join a party, see the factional warfare that is, you know, a, a bread and butter of the New South Wales division, right? No one who is a member of the Liberal Party for more than five minutes uh, doesn't understand this. So those who have chosen to stay are are essentially signing up for this kind of conflict. What is the biggest sin, really, is to not believe in anything. And that is one of the key criticisms that is constantly leveled at Scott Morrison internally within the within the coalition that you know um, that he doesn't believe in anything and so yes he may have been sort of installed or uh, supported by the moderate faction in effect with the support of the center right the Alex Hawke center right you know as a bulwark against Dutton but you know he's never really uh, had the sort of enthusiastic support of the moderates uh, you know, and at one point, Scott Morrison was very famously. Uh, there's a famous story about him showing up to both factional dinners on the same night. Yeah, but the that's right, right yeah. the far right, yeah, they absolutely hate him because he he did out their uh, candidate. Uh, you know, they they think he also had a hand in destroying Abbott. And even though you know, on policy terms, his personal preferences seem to align far more with the right, the far right rather, than the the moderates. You know, he he has never really proven himself to be of that faction either. And there's a sort of two level game going on here, right? By that, there's the implications for the state government and Dominic Perrottet, right, who is a member of the far right. And then there's, you know, Scott Morrison, who's in charge at the at the federal kind of level. And there's currently like there's a, a big interaction kind of going on around these pre-selections because in some cases Morrison wanted people from state seats to move to the federal election to help him win um, seats like Hughes, for example. But Dominic Perrottet obviously didn't want to see any more by-elections and so that's one of the reasons why that deal was made to basically kind of cut out Connie. But you actually asked me a slightly different question. I got distracted. I apologise. So the answer to your actual question, Mark, is I do wonder what the average voter thinks about this sort of intersign war. Like I, I was thinking about what you said about Kevin Rudd and when his colleagues kind of came out and eviscerated him. It didn't really seem to do anything or any major damage to Rudd's public standing with everyday kind of voters who are sort of 
only marginally or, you know, relatively uninterested in the everyday happenings of politics. But I think the difference there was that, you know, Rudd was someone who was perceived to be very bright, to have ideas, who wanted to do stuff, who was clearly trying, right, but stumbled over climate change and and kind of he failed to live up to his own rhetoric. I don't think the public sees Scott Morrison in the same light. And so these sort of internal character assessments from his closest sort of, I guess, colleagues and the sort of long, I guess, ghosts of his past, I think they might play out kind of differently. But even so, you know, I like, you know, we like to kind of talk about this sort of like, oh, inside baseball kind of beltway stuff. Well, look, when it comes down to it, you know, uh, we elect uh, political elites to do a job for us, and that is to govern the country. And we also rely on the media, another form of political elite, to keep them honest. So even even if this is perhaps perhaps not of interest to voters, it is actually really important to the political system that these kinds of, I guess, claims about the Prime Minister and his conduct are actually properly, I guess, ventilated. And I think Michael Toke will appear on the project tonight, so it will add fuel to the fire. Well, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. We'll go to a break now and come back in a sec. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, you were mentioning Michael Toke. Uh, before we go to perhaps uh, some more specific uh, discussion of that, um, because it does, you know, obviously fit into the, the pattern of what we've been covering anyway, but I just wonder whether there is a parallel, and I'll get both your quick responses on this, whether there is a parallel between between Morrison and Rudd in the sense that, and, and, and Turnbull to a degree as well, and that is these are leaders that are essentially there because they can win. I mean, Morrison wasn't exactly loved by his party room at the time that he came up the middle of that that race between Turnbull and and Dutton in 2018 but Morrison was the was the winner and in the end he was the winner because the calculation was made that they could win with him and and or at least some people thought that he would save the furniture at least I think at that stage they didn't even think they could probably win the next election such was the uh, the the blood on the floor from that that whole leadership stoush but Certainly Labor went to Rudd in uh, late 2006, I think it was, uh, with the view to winning an election. Uh, they, they, Liberals held their nose and voted for Malcolm Turnbull when they did do it, uh, when they knocked off Abbott uh, for the same reason. And it's when they don't look like they're going to win, that's when the supporters start to, you know, dropping like scales, I suppose. Well, this really striking thing about the current situation is that the coalition has gone to the last three elections 
each time with a different leader, yeah. each one covered in the blood of their predecessor, mm. and won. Yeah. But not this time. Yeah, that's right. This time now, they're going with someone who actually won last time and is still there. First person who's done that since John Howard in 2004 to 2007. And what was the lesson of the John Howard prime ministership? They should have got rid of him. They should have got Before the 2007 election, gone to Peter Costello, the heir apparent, yeah. who quite possibly could have beaten Kevin Rudd. Yeah. And had that happened, of course, the carbon pricing system that John Howard had promised at the 2007 election might have happened. Yeah, it's an amazing sort of what-if moment, sliding doors moment, a whole lot of different things. Exactly. We wouldn't have had the intense politicisation of that issue that Tony Abbott brought to it when he knocked off Malcolm Turnbull at the end of 2009, uh, took over the, the, the leadership, turned the opposition into a high-impact, non-cooperative process, shook the Labor government to the core. By 2010, Labor had axed its successful Prime Minister, put Julie Gillard in, she wins. Well, she, what, she get 72 seats in the, in the coalition, got 72 seats in that election. Then you have the negotiation. Gillard leads a minority government. Abbott, again, the high-impact operator, and gets vindicated, wins 90 seats. Well, we so think Labor's of Abbott, 55 in uh, 2013. We think of Abbott as a very high-impact operator, and he was certainly a nasty operator, but you, people forget that his job was so much easier as opposition leader because Kevin Rudd's allies were running a reign of terror internally in the Labor government against yeah. the Prime Minister, a completely disgraceful episode in Labor history. Mm. But I've got to say, in terms of the Liberal Party breaking its habitual behaviour of shunting unpopular leaders who look like they're going to lose an election and replacing them with some fresh meat that voters haven't got a bead on yet, so voters then give them... That's so well put, because that's actually what... That was actually the trick that Morrison really achieved. And this is the line I've been sort of the point I've made in some analysis around the place is that uh, Morrison's strength in 2019 is his weakness now. That is, his strength in 2019 was that voters didn't know him. He's a bit of a marketing expert. So voters didn't know him in 2019, which was an advantage. In 2022, they do know him and it's a disadvantage. But the Libs picked almost, if, if we go with your point, uh, Chris, and it's a really interesting one, the Libs picked the wrong time to suddenly you know, get, get principle and stick with their leader. They may have stuck with someone who can't take them over the line. You take well, him over the it's the rules. The rules. The well, rules make rules, it hard yeah. to replace him. It's, that's complete bollocks. The rules can be changed by a simple party room vote any time they want to do so. Yeah, the but, other uh, thing but, is but, there's sorry, a precedent. Chris, can I just make a point yeah. on that? Because I, I hear people say that, and that's true, but that vote would be tantamount to a leadership moment at that time, right? So, that's right. So, yes, you can do it. That's right. But you yes, can't you can pretend that it's just a procedural. You've got the important part of it, No, nah, but you can't Yes, just... that's right. Look, no, it you, would be you are old enough to remember. You are old enough to remember John Howard losing the leadership in 1989 as opposition leader. Regrettably. Do you Regrettably recall how that enough, happened? That now, Maria probably wasn't born, so let's fill no, her but in. she's more of an expert on the Liberal Party than I am. She's a political science scientist, so her history sometimes isn't as good as her political science. <laughs> and she couldn't be expected to know this, but it's a fascinating example of the range of I'll ways you, you can do in a that, leader. Maria. So in 1989, in May, I think it was four, but it was at least three, three or four liberals walked into John Howard's opposition leader's office and said, it's up. Yeah, this is Wilson, Tucky and, and co, wasn't it? It oh. was Fred Cheney, Peter Shack, John Moore and Wilson, Tucky. Yeah. And one of them had in their pocket a folded piece of A4 paper with the names of every Liberal member who had pledged to vote against 
held in a leadership vote. Yeah, but right? let's bear in mind they're in opposition. They're not in government at this point. Doesn't doesn't make any difference. Look, I gain this all the time. My great fear is that Scott Morrison won't be leading the Liberals at the next election. I think voters have an absolute right to cast their vote and judge his government at the coming election. So I fervently hope he remains Prime Minister at that poll on election day and, you know, accepts the judgment of the people. And I think that would be a lot healthier for the Liberal Party too, because if he loses, it's a clear signal to go. Whereas if he's replaced before the election in a coup, he could hang around like a bad smell, like certain other former opposition leaders and, and prime ministers causing problems. So I really hope that happens. Well, including but, John Howard, who goes but, on to be a dozen but new prime all, ministers. But all it would take to finish the scenario, all it would take is for Josh Frydenberg and Peter Dutton, the two most likely successors of Scott Morrison, to have a cup of tea and say this to each other. We don't know which one of us would win in a leadership contest, but we both know that we will do better for the coalition vote as as Prime Minister going to this election than Scott Morrison would who, who because he is an expired franchise. He is less popular than Anthony Albanese, right? Mm. That means a lot in the Liberal Party. So if they simply had a cup of tea and said for the good of the party and to save colleagues who would otherwise be unemployed after the election, you and I should combine to call it on, have a vote. We don't know who's going to win. May the best person win. Let's go for it. You know why that won't happen? Because Scott Morrison will refuse to show up to any such meeting. That wouldn't stop no, it happening, there, 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 is, there is no sitting, right, to bring them all together. And those that don't want to see Again, him go, I, I hate to play the I'm really old card, but I've seen party room meetings for just this purpose arranged out of sitting periods. There's a whole lot of myths about why it won't happen. Now, I actually don't think it will happen, and I'm pleased that it probably won't happen one of the reasons it's less likely than more likely to happen is because there's yet another option, and it is this. I don't know if you saw Zali Stegel on Quanda the other night. I did, yeah. Right, so you'd be aware of her comments where she said it was an open possibility that her position could be influenced by who was coalition leader during negotiations over who to support as a minority government Uh should neither side of politics get a majority. Now, that was signalling that she may support a minority coalition government providing Scott Morrison isn't leader. So let's let's go through a possible scenario here. Neither side gets a majority, the negotiations begin. So Anthony Albanese would be negotiating and someone, the Liberal leader would be negotiating. Now, if Scott lost the election, it's very likely that Josh or or Peter Dutton would be leader. Let's say it's Josh, more moderate face. So it would be Anthony Albanese negotiating and Josh Frydenberg negotiating, saying, look, we've cleaned out to Zali, people like Zali in other independent MPs. We've cleaned out the problem. The problem was Morrison. You know, I, Josh Frydenberg, am a more contemporary person, more mainstream values, happy to do more on climate, happy to meet you somewhat halfway on Integrity Commission. I'm obviously a much better person on gender than my predecessor. Zali Stegall could well support a minority coalition government led by Prime Minister Josh Frydenberg in that situation. She probably wouldn't be alone amongst independent MPs going in that direction, providing they could bargain enough from a new coalition leader who looked more moderate. You know, people aren't considering this factor, but the Liberals are very alive to it. Josh Frydenberg is particularly alive to it. Much easier to become the new Liberal leader if Scott Morrison loses the election and fails. 
but it's not like Frydenberg would necessarily be facing opposition leadership in that scenario. He may be able to bargain support for a minority coalition government. And you know what, Mark? That would make it two miracle coalition wins in a row. Yeah. Uh, Maria, do you want to respond to that? It's very interesting um, in terms of speculation. I don't really know if I have much more to to add to it. I mean, I think we actually have to get through the, the campaign. I saw a very interesting figure in the polling put out by the Herald today, which I thought was not the best news for the government, but also sort of signaled, I think, how difficult politics will become no matter who wins, which was that... of people thought the budget would be good for the country, which is interesting given uh, some of the sort of economically focused coverage of this budget has pointed to its inflationary risks and uh, the the fact that it is not really very big on a future agenda. So 50% thought it was good for the country and 40%, only 40% thought it was good for them. So that bit is not so great for the government and the fifty percent. Yeah, but they're all tradies, and uh, they'll probably uh, support the government as a result of you know. I mean, go- the government only actually thinks jobs involve you know people wearing hard hats and high vis and driving massive utes. They're, they're the only real jobs, apparently. So that we see that imagery all the time, and that's what the budget's attuned to. But I think you know you make a very good point. I, I think I'd probably say about that that sort of polling that it's it's really what. You know, you can sort of look at it about eight different ways, but oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, fifty percent of people think the budget's good. I, I think w- w- the way to look at it, right, is fifty percent of people think the budget's good for the economy, and really, it created no losers. I mean, it was a pre-election, it was a purely political budget uh, before an election, designed to create no class of specific losers. No one had, you know, there were no cuts that you would expect a coalition government to be doing in terms of fiscal consolidation. Remember when Josh Frydenberg told us that when unemployment was comfortably below five percent, below five percent. Uh, that uh, you know, fiscal consolidation or budget repair could start, and it wouldn't start before then. Well, now we've got a budget that's forecasting unemployment at three point seven five percent later this year, and perhaps four and a half, or three and a half percent. And yet the government is still not doing it. Of course, it's not doing it because it faces an election. So I'm not that surprised that people think it'll be good for the economy. They're not. Most people aren't economists, and they're not really that tuned into the sort of economic arguments about stimulus and, I know, and the relationship I know. with that and and possible inflation. And well, I think no that's one's really been why it would of, be a challenge. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're, I not, think, we're not having a we're not having a discussion around the fact that we're, we're we are already in difficult times, and it's not like it's going to get any easier. No, that's true. I think that's one of the th- confusing things about the budget. Just quickly, was that it sort of argued two contradictory strands. At one level, we're the government, we've got the economy, we've got this ebullient con- economy better than anywhere else in the world, we're fantastic, everything's great, we're in, in the recovery phase and we're growing strongly. At another level, it's saying, look, uh, things are sort of unstable, there's a great deal of uncertainty around, people are suffering, here's some emergency payments uh, with some borrowed money. Which is it? People aren't going to get too finicky about that because you know people will take those those uh, those handouts, uh, you know, uh, welfare recipients will get the two hundred and fifty dollars, and others will get the addition to the low and middle income tax offset after the election. But you know, people will probably budget that and they'll be happy for it. But will it change their vote? I don't know. The, look, the po- look, the budget was junk policy in a long line of very poor policy from this government. It produced an amazing media consensus, which I I can't remember over any other budget. Now, of course, the usual suspects said that the things you predict, though, fairly wittily, 
Uh, Greg Jericho in The Guardian, who's an excellent economic analyst, said it showed the government in its death throes. Mm. Uh, Anthony Albanese said showed it the budget had all the sincerity of a fake tan. I thought Before that might waving it through. But Mark, remarkably, the the journalist closest to the Prime Minister, Phil Curry, uh, nicknamed a stenographer, because, and it's very helpful because you can always get a kind of direct download of what Scott's thinking at any moment by reading Phil's Friday columns. I never miss them. They're great. He said that the budget was delivered on Tuesday night and had evaporated by Wednesday night. Now, that's the most government-friendly journalist in the press gallery's judgment of the budget. That well, is I, dire. I, I would... I would- probably quibble with uh, most government-friendly journalist in, in the press gallery. But I think the general point is right, and I might even go further and say it evaporated on Tuesday night when Connie Conchetta Fiaveranti-Wells stood up and, and basically, you know, rejigged the uh, the political news agenda yeah. by, by her excoriating assessment of the Prime Minister. What I want to do just in the time we've got remaining, in only a few minutes I suppose, but is just talk about the other possibility. I mean, you know what we've covered here is a number of things that uh, have have gone wrong for the government. A number of mistakes that in judgment the prime minister's made. We've talked about the assessments of the prime minister's character, which can't have helped, and which may presumably have a lot of liberals very worried about why they've they're stuck with this guy. It's also possible that he can win. He didn't look like he could win in 2019. He might be about to do it again. The polls could close up a bit. Um, there could be some contest. There may be events, of course, that could happen in this election campaign that we haven't even imagined. External events or some sort of big mistake made by Labor in its costings or, you know, things have happened in elections that do change their trajectory a bit. What's your assessment of that overall situation, Maria? Do you think Morrison can actually pull this out of the fire? I mean, theoretically, I'm not asking you whether he will, but whether he can. Uh, yeah, look, I, I do. And this is the reason why I think that it's still a live possibility. And, and that is the way the vote is distributed across the country really matters, right? It's it's not enough to win a majority of votes. Plenty of Labor opposition leaders have actually managed that uh, achievement. So did Andrew Peacock in 1990, didn't he? What really matters is the distribution of that vote. And it's not necessarily clear to me that the vote will necessarily flow in all kinds of seats. I, I think the government is in serious trouble. I think that Labor uh, actually does have a chance of pulling off a majority government. I don't think I would have said that in January. I would have bet on a hung parliament. So I think the situation has drastically deteriorated. But I do also think that this is an unusual time. It might be one of the few times a campaign actually matters. They, 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 you know, according to the empirical evidence, they don't, they don't tend to matter too much. But it really might come down to, frankly, how the seats kind of fall. I, I do think the stuff in New South Wales is deeply damaging for the government because that's kind of where they were hoping to retain government. Yeah, they were hoping to sort of make up for losses they, exactly. that they expect to take elsewhere. I mean, there's the if the most optimistic uh, terms of, of Labor's gains in WA, for example, uh, seem to be around five seats, more likely as I think two and possibly three. I'm thinking of Pierce, which is uh, Christian Porter's old seat, and Swan, Steve Irons retiring there as well. Both of those seats I think Labor feels has a very good chance of getting. We know, of course, the Liberal brand in WA is 
utterly shredded. Although Mark McGowan was, you know, playing playing happy friendlies with uh, with Prime Minister recently, much, much more so than he does with Anthony Albanese, in- interestingly. And in fact, it was fascinating, Chris, you and I being originally from Adelaide, um, there was the PM over there in WA, glad handing it with Mark McGowan, having flown straight over the top of uh, South Australia, which was in election frenzy and where the government went over a cliff. And they didn't really want to see Morrison because the things were bad enough already. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so so th- there's a couple of seats, maybe three, maybe four, that could fall in from the government in WA and, and sort of game over, right? And there's... Queensland, there's 30 seats there. Labor holds six of them, I think. That may remain static as well. The Libs think they've got a chance in Lingiari. Some even mentioned Solomon in, in, in both of those in Northern Territory. I think both of them are probably out of their reach. Uh, we hear about Boothby in South Australia at every election, but it's on a f- very wafer-thin margin. I think it's 1.4%. So that's a possible Liberal loss there. Victoria, Chisholm presumably goes back to Labor. There's one or two others, and of course the role of the independents as well. And then you get to New South Wales. Well, I suppose Libs also think they might have a chance of getting Lions back in W. In sorry, in Tasmania. But again, I, I, I'm not entirely sure whether that's uh, being optimistic. But you get to New South Wales, and that's where they're hoping to essentially, you know, protect their net position. And you've got seats like Eden Monero, where they haven't had a candidate on the ground until the very last minute, uh, and and a few others. Uh, yeah, it's true, and I think. Given the experiences of the last few elections, people are notably reluctant to kind of get out of a defensive posture and go, yeah, Labor's going to win, mm-hmm. right? And I'd include myself amongst those analysts. You know, there's a lot of gun shyness around yeah. about calling it. And, of course, we've got to be really cautious. Campaigns are so important. All the polls are telling us now is what kind of result there would be would be likely if the election was held this Saturday. Yeah, it's not predictive. And the election exactly, it's the, you know a progress score halfway through the fourth quarter. Mm. Um, so we we need to be really cautious. If I if I was putting a hundred bucks on it now, I would bet on a solid Labor win. With this caveat, if you look at news poll, Labor's primary vote fell to thirty eight percent in the latest survey, mm. even though it's on a strong two-party preferred result, 38% primary is what Julia Gillard got in 2010. Yeah, yeah. They want that primary vote in the in the, in the 40-plus range uh, to be to be genuinely And, and it has been recently. It's it has been. It's been up yeah. as high as 41. So it could be just noise in the survey, you know, something to keep a close eye on. Yeah, or just a bit, but, of, bit of a budget ripple that, that disappears. Yeah. But, I, but I tell you, Mark, the moment when I really fundamentally reassessed how I was analysing things and what I was you know, personally forecasting in my own little scone. And it was a senior New South Wales Liberal, uh, a very senior New South Wales Liberal, who said to me, oh, Labor's going to cream Morrison. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, it's simple. Unless in New South Wales enough seats are won to offset the losses elsewhere, we are done. Hmm. And this person went on to say, you know, take a look at the New South Wales division. It is on fire. It is a, a complete wreck. There is no way against the backdrop of this infighting that Morrison is going to be able to pick up enough seats in New South Wales 
to offset losses elsewhere. Yeah, and it's not just the infighting, like the stories about it, but it's the inability to actually have candidates on the ground doing things. And, and the fact that the Libs are going to be spread so thin, defending safe seats in some uh, cases against these very credible independents. Uh, you that's know, they're true. fighting off the, know, the hard right, the, the populist right in Queensland, Hanson and they can't Palmer even print and all the these call sort of flutes. They can't even print nah. the call flutes in a number of key, key yeah. seats. This is just extraordinary. That's right. And they're, and they're knee deep in bad blood, uh, you know, there. So, and, and look, final comment on this, right? It is astonishing to think that someone who used to be the director of the New South Wales division of the Liberal Party and who has risen to be Prime Minister to the very top has so little clout, so little organisational control, so little prowess at, at, at negotiations and so little sort of front-footedness about the addressing of problems, and we've seen this with a range of policy areas throughout his prime ministership. He's the one who holds the timing of the election in his hand, and yet his own division is in this bitter internecine fight. Well, and, right and to up, be fair, right he created he this to- situation. Well, yeah, and he's been instrumental in creating it. And then, and- But, you know, when it comes down to it, it's all about Scott Morrison and Alex Hawke. And I think one of the big stories that I hope journalists pursue after the election is what was so important about saving Alex Hawke's pre-selection to Scott Morrison that he was prepared to blow up the entire New South Wales division and possibly cruel his re-election as Prime Minister in order to save Alex Hawke. What is going on there? It is fascinating. <laughs> well, it, it goes it goes to his maintaining control and his primacy in that electorate. And I guess my final word would be, it is interesting to me that all of his strengths ultimately relate to his machine man persona and that a bit like Bill Shorten, he seems to have struggled to move beyond the machine and into the prime ministership, a la someone like Bob Hawke. Yeah, and yet, and and yet even the machine part of it's not been particularly uh, adept. Uh, one would have thought, uh, as I was just saying. Look, thanks. That's been a terrific discussion. Uh, you know, we could keep talking about this for a long time, and we're going to be talking about it a lot for the next few weeks. And I think maybe Chris, it depends obviously on the result. But you're right about that um, that sense of wariness that people have uh, in looking at what constitutes empirical data in front of us, albeit not predictive. Uh, people will look back and say, of course that result happened. Uh, the you know the evidence was there, but 2019 has made a lot of people very hesitant about making any sort of predictions. I think it probably extends to the commentariat. It certainly extends uh, to people in you know the parliamentarians themselves. So there are many things that will happen between now and then, including some debates. If someone bombs very badly in debate. Debates don't usually turn things as much as people who cover them expect them to, but I guess a very bad performance, a key mistake, um, who knows? You know, they're, they're, things could happen. Things can change. That's why That's why you have election campaigns, I guess. So we're going to uh, watch this one very closely here on Democracy Sausage. That's it from us. Uh, thank you, Chris, for your contribution. Pleasure. And Maria, once again. Always good. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as I say, that's it for Democracy Sausage this week. Uh, We'll look forward to talking to you again next week when we'll do it all again. Bye for now. 